Hello and welcome to a new series of the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and every fortnight or so I will dig deeply into the motivations of documentary filmmakers, how they find and tell their stories and the strategies they employ to fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode, I speak to Felicity Morris and Bernie Higgins, co-producers and directors of the new Netflix series American Nightmare. Over three episodes, they tell the story of Aaron Quinn and his partner, Denise Huskins, and the nightmare they endure when Denise is kidnapped from their bed by intruders in the middle of the night. Their nightmare is compounded when law enforcement don't believe Aaron's story, and then when Denise shows up two days later, the police vilify her for wasting police time. And that's just episode one. It's a skillfully made series that builds up to a powerful third episode that will leave you raging. Felicity and Bernie previously made one of the most viewed documentaries probably of all time in The Tinder Swindler, and this is another audience hit, having been watched over 20 million times in its first week on Netflix. They join me to discuss the making of the series. Thanks for joining me, Bernie and Felicity. It's really great to have you on the podcast again. We talked to you last time around the Tinder swindler um, and it feels like it's a good place to kind of pick up from because obviously that was a massive success and not not just in terms of how many people saw it which was a huge number but also it's great to see getting the BAFTA and, and all those kinds of things so you know critically acclaimed as well as as being watched by many people how was that in terms of then figuring out what to do next because when you have a success like that, presumably opportunities arise and, and people are probably asking you more than usual. So what are you going to do next? I think that, you know, the Tinder Swindler, obviously that story was really rooted in the victim's experience. And for us, it was unexpected, actually, that the show would have the response that it did. Um, given, you know, it wasn't really about the villain. It was about the women's experience in the story. And I think that, you know, that for Bernie and I, the question that we always ask ourselves when we make these films, when we make these series and commit all of the time that we do to them, you know, they take sort of 18 months from start to finish. And, you know, we really like live and breathe the 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 entirety of the production, you know. Um, we sort of don't talk about much else <laughs> during the time that we're making these shows. And so we always say, you know, why? Why tell this story? And, you know, after the Tinder Swindler, there were other projects that came our way. Um, and actually this one, the the story of Denise and Aaron, was one that Raw, the production company that we made the Tinder Swindler with, had been working on access for nearly two years. Um, and finally it came off and then Raw approach Bernie and I to make the series um, and I think that you know with that story it was very clear that while it's you know a shocking twisty turny unbelievable story um, you peel back the layers and there's obviously these huge themes that you can delve into um, so it was for those reasons and and certainly you know after our first call with Denise and Aaron and, you know, how compelling they would be as storytellers that Bernie and I, you know, said to each other, this is this is amazing and we should, you know, we should make this one. Bernie, had you been aware when you were, you know, working on the Tinder Swindler or other projects with Raw that this was a project that they were trying to develop in, in the background or is, does that happen quite separately? I mean, you hear conversations in the kitchen <laughs> until something gets green lit. 
really, unless you're part of the development team that's on it, then you don't necessarily get to hear a lot about it because there's so many stories being developed at any one time and, you know, only a certain percentage that actually get across the line. Um, so you don't like to get, you know, too invested or too excited about a story until it's really been greenlit and you can really start to let your imagination run with it. Um, but yeah, we'd, we'd heard whispers of it, but it wasn't until that, that it was given the go-ahead that we really started digging into it. And then in terms of the handover, so like if the development team is doing all of that work and building up all that trust, it's kind of an interesting point there. And when they hand over to you guys as the team to then make it, because you presumably then have to build that trust in, in that relation that you're going to have with them. Absolutely. Yeah, and that was one of the key things that, you know, Fliss and I had to to do right at the beginning was, well, we, we have to talk to Denise and Arne. You have to have the right chemistry with the people that you're going to be working with as well because it is a very, very intimate and intense relationship. And we are asking these people to bear their souls, um, firstly to us, um, and then trusting us to, to bear their souls to a global platform on Netflix. And they have to trust that we're going to do that in a way that is mindful of of the sensitivities to them, of their own vulnerabilities, of protecting their mental health, of making sure that they get to say all of the things that they want to say. And you know, Fliss and I often, you know, we we talk about how we're the guide rails for these for these contributors and for these people who want their story to be heard. Um, and it's very much for us to just, you know, help them tell their story in a way that's going to connect with the audience. But yeah, the chemistry has to be there. There has to be absolute trust. Um, so that is key. Um, but, you know, we were really lucky in that the, the, the exec on this, Rebecca North, was the same exec who had actually developed the story from the start. So there was a kind of seamless, you know, there was, you know, continuity for Denise and Aaron, which was really important. In terms of, of you guys working together, because I feel like in, in documentary, it is great if you can work closely with, with someone else, especially if you're, you're going to be so invested in something for such a long period of time. Did how you work together change? I know because I feel like your credits changed a little bit between the two projects. Did how you work together change Felicity across the two projects? I don't know that it did change particularly. You know, the, the Tinder Swindler was such a partnership between Barney and I. Um, and, you know, in in the way that, you know, there's, there's there wasn't really a separation. Uh, you know, often there can be on projects between a director and a producer but, you know, that was really, really a partnership. And so on American Nightmare, I think Bernie and I had realised that, you know, we work best together as a team, both producing and directing, which is why we've got this producer and director credit on American Nightmare. So, you know, we were both involved in all of the, you know, research conversations with all of the con- contributors, which is the thing that, you know, sometimes falls to the the producer on a show um and then you know obviously kind of coming up with and brainstorming and thinking about you know how to visualize the story how this how this series should look um you know bunny and i have different opinions on certain things but you know we always find i think and I, i feel particularly on this the sort of best way to to tell it this wasn't an easy story you know obviously there's lots of archive of Aaron in the police station you know there's other news archive and things but you know with Denise's story when she is held in the cabin for 48 hours there's there's no archive of that there there are no pictures 
for us to rely on. And so, you know, those conversations, which, you know, spanned across months, um, we had a brilliant, brilliant cinematographer on this, Stefano Ferrari. And I think the three of us working together was a bit of a, felt like a bit of a dream team. And, um, you know, we were all, you know, we all have similar sensibilities. Um, you know, none of us were kind of trying to throw all the bells and whistles at this for the sake of it or try snazzy things just so that we can, you know, I guess, um, have the opportunity to kind of film things that are, you know, more, ex- you know, more exciting for the sake of learning the craft. Um, you know, everything we felt had to have a purpose and had to sort of earn its place on screen. Um, so no, I mean, we love working together and, you know, want to keep doing it. And actually Bernie and I are setting up our own production company at the moment, Lady Well Films. So long may the partnership continue. Well, that's great. Congratulations. I mean, when you, then Bernie came to the story, like it is actually an incredible story, isn't it? I mean, so, you know, obviously the team are developing it and, and so on. Then you come, and I think I understand there's a book that they wrote. Was that already in existence at this stage? Yeah, and that was actually, you know, the first bit of research that we did was to, to read that book. Um, Denise and Aaron wrote it. Um, I think it was released two or three years ago. It's called Victim F. Um, so yeah, that was the first thing we did, so that we weren't entering our first conversation with them totally cold, so that we we understood what had happened to them in the first instance, and then we could start thinking about how to move that story from from the book to the screen, really, and what would be the best way to to do that because they're both very different kind of mediums and different experiences, reading a book or and watching a series. So it was kind of, but that what that book really helped us understand was the parts that were most important to them because they were the bits that they'd included in the book. So it was really helpful. And what stood out for you about the story, re- reading it? Oh, God, everything, Ross. <laughs> Every single part of this story is incredible. You know, from, from the home invasion, you know, guys turning up in wetsuits in the middle of the night. I mean, it is. it really plays into, you know, your worst fear as a human, you know, and that's kind of where the, the title came from, obviously, The Nightmare, because the entire story was just a series of what you've heard people say are their worst nightmares. You know, from the, from being a child, you know, you're terrified of the boogeyman, that there's somebody in your wardrobe or some, somebody under your bed, you know, somebody coming into your, your bedroom in the middle of the night when you're asleep in the dark and that you're most vulnerable. So for that to happen was, you know, the, the first thing. Then obviously, you know, to be abducted and taken away in the middle of the night, to be sexually assaulted, you know, these are all genuine fears that people have every day. Every woman walking home in, in the dark has feared that happening to her. Somebody grabbing her and throwing her in the trunk of a car and taking her away to be held captive. You know, to, to then Aaron going to the police and being accused of a crime that he didn't commit, which is playing into a lot of other people's worst fears. So every single time you turn the corner of this story, it just gets worse. Um, so, you know, every... So that really was the elements that were shocking about it. And then, of course, you know, the the biggest villains in the story, really, if you kind of, you know, we we don't really want to focus on Matthew Muller. He's very much a footnote in this story as far as we're concerned. But, you know, to think that we live within these um, systems and institutions that we, you know, some of us are able to kind of believe or kind of naively hope are there to protect and to serve us are actually there to vilify us and to to make their life easier by just going for the the path of least resistance at all times. So at every kind of point, 
where we feel we should feel safe, you know, the, the rug is taken away from under us in this story. And so therefore, to be able to tell a story like that, to be able to open up people's eyes to how the systems work and everybody is vulnerable to it. And, you know, that's what Denise and Aaron are very conscious of. And, you know, something they really wanted to come across in this series is that if this could happen to them, it could happen to anyone. You know, people like to think that they've got some level of control in a chaotic world or that if they live this like safe, you know, middle class, modest, white life, they're they're fine. They don't really have anything to fear. And actually what Denise and Arne really help everyone realise is that we all need to be doing checks and balances when it comes to these systems. We all need to be realising that, you know, we need to get a lawyer, that we shouldn't necessarily just trust people because they're in law enforcement. You know, you'd like to think that you can, and we're certainly not anti-police or anti any of these systems, but we all just need to be just aware of the fact that they are not perfect and they need to be held to account. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there were many, <laughs> there were many, many, many very attractive and shocking elements of this story, which is exactly why, you know, to speak to Fliss's answer earlier, the why, why are we telling this story? There's at least six good reasons to tell this story. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, even apart from the police and, you know, as you say, Matthew Muller almost is a footnote to the story. I mean, the media side of it is is shocking as well and how, you know, the party line just gets trotted out and no one even thinks to question it. You know, it's it's just incredible. But we can go there in a minute. But Felicity, in terms of then, you've got three parts. You've got these characters, you know, obviously Aaron and uh, Denise are, are, are the protagonists in that respect. How do you decide how you're going to tell it and where you're going to reveal things and so on? Because it, you have twists and turns, but of course you have to handle those and you have to decide how you're going to use them and so on. So, so when you're thinking about that, how you're going to approach the story, what were the kind of conversations you were having and what decisions did you come to? I think, you know, always with retrospective stories like this, um, you know, we have a, I guess, a luxury as filmmakers because we can sit and speak to all of the contributors. And, you know, you cast your net wider, so you always speak to more people than end up being in the film. And so, therefore, you can do this incredible information gathering exercise. You know, Denise and Aaron um, gave up hours and hours and hours of their time speaking to speaking to Bernie and I on on Zoom um, as did their families. So that allows us to kind of have, you know, what really are the raw materials that are going to make it into the film. And then we can kind of carefully think about how we're going to tell this story. And I think, you know, the big thing that we wanted was for the audience to never be ahead of what was happening at the time. So um, you might notice that the contributors, the interviewees speak in present tense. It's as though these things are happening to them in that moment so that the audience can very much be in their shoes, um, you know, in their perspective, kind of living and breathing the story as they did. But it also allows for the audiences to be finding out information as people did at the time and therefore be drawing conclusions. And what we hoped is that people might draw con- the similar conclusions to how how people did at the time and then therefore sort of challenge the way that they're thinking. We really wanted people to have kind of an active viewing throughout this, be constantly questioning, you know, what's going on here? You know, is, is this detective, um, is this detective wrong? You know, should we be 
um, should we be thinking that the boyfriend's behind this because the boyfriend always is behind these things. And so we wanted to kind of play on these true crime tropes that we see in true crime documentaries all the time so that then when, you know, the big twists do happen, that they kind of land in a heavier and more impactful way. You know, nothing in, nothing in life sort of happens in a straight line. And so we really wanted the audience to kind of go on this up and down journey um, to both be thinking about how they would think about this story if it was unfolding at the time and they were just watching, but also to be very much grounded in the experiences of, the, of Denise, Aaron, their families, the people who were kind of going through this. Um, and it feels like, you know, having seen some of the response, you know, you tend to have a check on Twitter, you know, look at, you know, hashtag American Nightmare. And, you know, people do sort of tweet as they're watching, you know, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. What? I can't believe it. And, you know, that's what we wanted, you know, for people to for people to be feeling at home. It's just, you know, first of all, intrigue, suspicion, shock, surprise, horror, and then just outrage when you know you come to realize how wrong the police got it um and you know particularly with Denise she tells her story obviously for that first sort of 20 minutes of episode two and that's exactly how she told the story to the police so to have the audience kind of sit there and listen to her as the detectives will have done and then see that these cops came to the conclusion that she was lying even after you know, she'd gone through that story again and again and again in, you know, the incredible detail that she did. Um, you know, we really just wanted for for this to kind of land and sit heavy with people. Yeah, but he, and he, despite her testimony, the police are, are calling her a liar. And, and as a viewer, it's possible that you might go like, well, you know, why are the police so sure? You know, you know is, there, is there more to this than 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 meets the eye? So, you're still a little bit in that kind of position of wondering until you get to like kind of episode three. And it's re- it's really interesting to me as well. Kind of what I loved watching it and having spoken to you before and, and, and watched the Tinder Swinder and so on. And knowing, I suppose, myself, like a lot of Raw's work and, and so on. And, you know, there, there are elements, stylistic elements that you might uh, take from this series and see like, well, those are things that are you know, that you may have seen stylistically elsewhere in terms of like almost a house style of role or whatever it might be. You know, the, the retrospective interviews with that kind of past continuous tense, amazing use of archive, amazing use of reveals, beautiful cinematic reconstruction. Those are things we've seen in, in other projects. But I still feel like I really strongly feel your voice coming out in terms of the themes and the interest that you bring to it, especially in episode three, which I just thought was fantastic. And I just thought like Misty and getting that kind of female perspective on this story is just so powerful. That's how I felt watching it. So I kind of interested in your reaction to that in terms of when you're directing it and, and bringing it to life to make sure that your voice is in there and that you're ensuring, I suppose, that people are getting this story from the perspective that you want them to get it from. Yeah, I think a big part of that is the fact that we are female filmmakers and we understand the nuances of the female experience more than male directors with the best will in the world are are necessarily able to, especially when it comes to sexual assault and to 
how women respond to to sexual assault because you know it's on a scale and I don't know any woman that hasn't at some point experienced something that felt intimidating in a way that a lot of men haven't had that experience and that's just a fact so it's giving the woman the platform to, to talk about that you know and we see it with with Misty and you know what happened with her friend and therefore her motivation to join law enforcement and to give women this safe space to come to we see it with Tracy you know when, when her experience is dismissed by the cops and you know she's asked you know maybe did you is there a chance that you might just be having a nightmare you know just to have your own experience diminished and dismissed in a way that a lot of women can feel like, oh, well, maybe I am making a big, bit, bit too deal of this. You know, women have had that experience when, when they've expressed something that a guy has done or said to them and, you know, the response might have been, oh, he was only joking and, oh, you're being oversensitive oh, and it's not that big a deal and he's not like that. He's a really nice guy. So we're often, you know, told to, like, just dismiss that sixth sense that you have that this isn't a good guy, actually, and that was creepy and that was an invasion of your boundaries and your privacy and everything else. And then, obviously, you know, D- Denise talks about it you know, it's heartbreaking that this is, you know, the third time this had happened to Denise. And every time she felt, okay, well, if I'd done it a bit differently, then this would, you know, it's my fault. I didn't do enough to sort this out. So then by the end, when when this is happening to her, she's like, you know, what has to happen? So there's definitely, there there could have been many different ways to tell this story. Um, but we really felt it was super important um especially in episode three to really address what is a global issue and not only for women we know that men have been victims of sexual assault as well but um you know women have experienced this throughout their lives you know from you know there's not a woman in the world who hasn't experienced some level of this so we really wanted to just give a platform to that and to hopefully educate viewers at home and the fact that this this is an extraordinary story obviously this is an nth degree situation that happened to Denise but variations of this invasion of boundaries has and dismissal of um, pain has been happening to women since the beginning of time and enough is enough so it's kind of just hoping that perhaps it goes under the skin of people that hasn't gone under the skin with before because they're able to see it across the scale with all of these women being able to tell these stories. And, you know, we've also seen, you know, other and a lot of the opinion pieces that have come out since the series. You know, there was a, a beautiful piece in The Independent by Olivia Petter um, a couple of days ago where she talked about her own experience of sexual assault and, you know, reporting it to the police and basically being told not to bother. And there are lots of these conversations happening on social media, you know, in these personal essays. And that really, while it's horrifying and depressing, it's not shocking. You know, no women are shocked by this in the same way that a lot of men seem to be. Um, So if we're opening the door to that conversation and giving a voice to these women, you know, it's not necessarily about mine and Fliss's voice. It's it's, It's a female voice, to be honest rather than any of our personal agenda. It's just there's an opportunity here to really start a wider conversation about this. So let's take it. And, and it's it's an absolutely brilliant episode. I just thought it was phenomenal. And, and you just feel rage when you're watching it. You know, Felicity, do you want to add to that? I mean, it must be kind of, I mean, I don't know if the word, right word is gratifying, but to see these conversations coming out of it is really, really positive. Yeah, it feels really positive. And, you know, who knows whether any change will happen I mean that's you know that's 
really what we hope for is that, you know, there might be police departments, police officers um, who who watch this and, you know, think twice about how they handle, you know, a, a, a female or, you know, a victim of any crime, really, you know, just to to listen first, perhaps, and and, you know, quietly investigate you know and not sort of come from the point of thinking that this victim of a crime is a suspect um but but who who knows whether whether the impact will stretch that far um you know certainly it feels like you know there's been as bunny said you know lots of really brilliant writing around this series um and you know but bunny and i sort of pushed a lot during making this for 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 the for people to bear witness to these women's stories regardless of whether or not it's uncomfortable um you know there was a lot of conversation you know in the edit about or oh, is this is this too much for audiences and you know we would constantly say no this should be uncomfortable people should be listening to this this is a woman who wants to tell her story she wants to tell every detail of what happened to her and obviously you know there's a real fine balance in in the filmmaking in not sort of using it as an exploitative crutch especially you know obviously Denise's ordeal in the in the cabin but you know there was you look at shows like Game of Thrones and I don't know how many countless rape scenes in that series um, and, you know, people can sit and watch that and don't, you know, don't find that un- as uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the conversations that we had making the series was, you know, we've, we've, we've got to tell this woman's story in as much detail as we can. And if it's uncomfortable, it's because it should be. Um, but, yeah, no, the, 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 the sort of the pieces that we've read in, in you know, online and in newspapers have have been, um, you know, made us made us feel proud of that the show is getting the response that we really, really hoped that it would. You mentioned the edit there and the conversations you have in it, and you're working for a company that has an incredible track record in, in telling stories so well, and and you know some really talented exec producers that have have been there and done it. How does that help, and how does it complicate? matters when you're when you're trying to tell the story in the way you want to do it how did how do you find that in that sort of edit point where you're looking at things like the twists and the turns and what audiences are comfortable with and and so on it helps enormously i mean we are very lucky in that you know we've spent a number of years at raw which is like the best possible you know documentary university i suppose is the way that you could you could describe it for people who you're coming up through the ranks there you know we're working with really inspiring filmmakers um, people who've made, you know, the best premium docs that, that get talked about for years afterwards. So we're extremely lucky that we have people we can go to and say, what do you think about this? Or can you watch this and have, let us give, give us your notes or whatever. So it's, you know, it's, it's a really collaborative atmosphere. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's not restrictive. You know, it, there is an understanding that we are all creatives. We all are different. Um, we all have different styles. We all want to tell stories in different way, and there's a trust there as well. So, you know, there, like I say, you know, there could have been many different ways to tell this story. Um, it was brought to Fliss and I because they trusted that we would tell it in a way that would be compelling. 
Um, and therefore, you know, we were given quite a long leash in terms of, of, of what we were able to do, but also within, you know, that very kind of safe environments where there's other um, more experienced and people that we could call on for help if necessary. But, you know, it was, it's a great place to have worked and to have learned the craft. Um, but yeah, we definitely wanted it to feel very much to, to have, like you said earlier, you know, our voice in it and, and our particular sensibilities coming across on screen and it for it to feel like it's its own entity. I wondered as well about going from the Tinder Swinder and I guess to what extent, you know, were you guys able to take the experience from the previous one and, and maybe address this one having an even stronger feeling of what you wanted? Yeah, I mean, I think on every project, it's it's a real learning curve um and you know don't fuck with cats i worked with you know an amazing director who was also just so collaborative and brought me into every creative conversation so therefore you know it felt like you know like a partnership making that series and you know making the tinder swinner that was exactly you know how i wanted to work as the as a director and bernie and i you know work very much together on that you know from you know from the scripting you know scripting all the way through to you know the final thing that you do which is the you know these drama reconstructions the visualizations and then on you know with American Nightmare I think that you know Bernie and I had sort of developed you know even sort of where to place the camera which often you know you can kind of be very wide with your interview setup but we want I think that there's the audience kind of get a lot from from feeling like they're sitting across from these people and having the conversation with them themselves. So I think that was something, you know, that we thought we wanted to bring into this series is to have the audience have the POV, the point of view that we as the directors sitting in front of them interviewing them are. So you're sitting basically right next to the right next to the camera so that the eye line is as as straight as can be without being that sort of direct eye to the audience. And then I think it's the smartest directors bring into the team the very best creatives, the very best people. And, you know, we we had a cinematographer, Stefano Ferrari, who gave us, you know, so much more time and thought than I think that, you know, some DPs do. You know, he was giving us hours and hours and hours of time and thinking and watching cuts in the edit, giving us his feedback so it's just, and and then obviously the editors, you know, you spend, we spent nine months in the edit with two editors. They too live and breathe the experience and are kind of imparting their wisdom and their ideas into kind of, you know, when we go and film other things throughout the course of the edit. So, you know, really, I think the biggest thing I've learned is to kind of let people in to the, 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 the sort of directing, you know, you being the sort of top decision maker, as it were, bring these people in and use their brilliant ideas because you know everybody brings something to these to these projects you know whether it be the execs from above whether it be Netflix's feedback or you know whether it be your assistant producer or your researcher who also is sort of watching things but from a slightly different level or maybe across the archive in a way that you're not so I think you know what I learned from Mark Lewis the director on Cats Don't Fuck With Cats is just collaborate and and have have a great time even though it's a heavy story you know have a great time making it we're really lucky to do this job 
um, and you know to travel in the way that we do for everyone on that team the experience should just feel really rewarding and people should be feel should feel seen because everybody cares about it as much as we do so then in in terms of like you mentioned the two edits are you guys working to a deadline when you're doing a project like this with Netflix? Is there a kind of, we need to have this done by a particular time and we need to have these two edits running and so on. And, and what's that like? It's a scheduling nightmare, Ross. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I asked. <laughs> you often see people looking at a huge Excel spreadsheet while tearing their hair out and crying. Um, no, it's generally, you know, we have to deliver a certain amount of cuts. To, you know, I think for Netflix, it's five cuts of each episode. So, you know, rough cut one, rough cut two, fine cut one, five cut. So it's kind of, and there's dates where those have to be delivered. And you can't really miss those dates because these commissioners at Netflix are so busy that their PAs kind of, they block out, you know, Wednesday morning in a month's time to watch American Nightmare episode one, rough cut two. So you, you got to deliver it. And that can be, you know, we've definitely been leaving the edit at 4am on a number of occasions because it had to go, it had to be uploaded in time for them to have, you know, their 9.30 viewing. So yeah, that's how it works. But, but you know, like Fliss said, you know, everybody is so invested and so committed to it. And everybody wants to make sure that their own notes get done. Because, you know, what happens is, you know, we're working on these episodes and, you know, Fliss will have a set of notes. I'll have a set of notes. Then the editor, editor one will have a set of notes and editor two might have also looked and have a set of notes because we kind of divide them by episode a little bit. And then Fliss and I just crisscross and crisscross constantly between them. So, you know, getting through all of those notes and, and, and getting them in front of Netflix and then they come back with their own notes. And then so you're working, you're just constant, constantly working through notes. And sometimes it can feel a little bit like I, I can't, I actually can't think of anything new because I'm just constantly answering notes. And I'm not even sure if I even still stand by that note I put in three weeks ago. I think I might have completely changed my mind, but not everybody's commented on that note. So it's, it's, so it's, it's fun, but you know, we, you kind of need that pressure because otherwise you could, you know, it can be paralysis by analysis. So, you know, we can just sometimes say, you know what, let's just put it in. You know, we're three, two at a vote in the edit right now. We're not sure what way to go. Let's throw it to Netflix and they can have the deciding vote about what should happen here. So it's really helpful. And everybody has, you know, brilliant ideas. Um, and then, you know, it just comes down to, OK, what are we going to go with in the end? But, yeah, there's definite deadlines. And thank God for that, because otherwise we'd probably still be doing episode one today. Looking to the future, you mentioned that you've started your own production company together. I mean, that's exciting. Is, is there a particular kind of focus that you, you want to bring to it, to your collaboration now into the future? I think always it's just about, you know, the strength of a story and what we were talking about at the start of our conversation, which is, you know, why tell it? I think that there has to be that that at the heart of it. But that's not to say that, you know, we only want to be telling these sort of really important crime stories. Um, you know, I think we both love to work on something that's funny and fun. You know, the Tinder Swindler had elements of that which, you know, was really brilliant, the fact that we could have a bit of fun with it. And, um, and um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Bernie and I are both female filmmakers and our perspective is female, but I don't think that that has to be limiting in the stories that we're telling. Um, you know, we very much obviously want to keep telling these these stories that have women, you know, these amazing women at the heart of it. But also, I think we want to sort of be able to branch out and have a really, um, you know, diverse slate of, of stories that are coming through Ladywell films. 
Um, but no, it's it's just about it's just about finding these kind of holy we call them like holy shit stories, and and you know hopefully for us as as filmmakers to take a night you know and that you know I feel like American Nightmare um, we we learned so much and I think that you know to keep making things and to hopefully keep making good things that that people watch and that you know people respond to and that. Um, strike people's attention for whatever reason I think that that's you know that's high quality you know that's sort of what we what we're about and what we keep you know want to keep on doing well I'm sure after seeing this a lot of people will want to see what you're going to do next I mean it's a brilliant series congratulations thanks again for talking to me again and wish you all the best with with the next step thank you very much thanks Ross thanks so much Thanks again to Felicity and Bernie for taking part in the podcast. American Nightmare is now available to watch on Netflix worldwide. Um, Thanks to Stephen Galvin and to Film Ireland for supporting the podcast. And thanks to film composer Michael Fleming for providing the music. You can find more of that at michaelflemingmusic.com. You'll find me on various platforms as Ross Whitaker TV. And thanks to you for listening.